Acts chapter 25, beginning at verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were there put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to, the, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. 
but I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said that would happen, that the Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. They left the room, and while talking with one another, they said, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is God's word. Father, thank you for uh, your word to us. Thank you for the certain hope of the resurrection. And uh, if we're uh, used to these things, if we're trusting in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, then please, by your spirit, would you reassure us of these truths. If we're uh, very new to them, please would you give us understanding and insight into the reasonableness uh, of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the book of Acts, the, um, the sort of end of it, 21 to uh, 28, these chapters that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. And I want to start with a couple of quotations. They'll come up on the screen now. I wonder what you make of uh, these. So here's uh, Richard Dawkins writing about the resurrection. He says, accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. It's a comment from Richard Dawkins. Or this one in the bit we had read. The resurrection was not done in a corner, the Apostle Paul, Acts 26, verse 26, the bit that we had read. One saying, the resurrection of Jesus is just a myth. The other saying, it wasn't a myth, it's a fact. It's a fact that's verifiable. You can, you can go and check it out for yourself. It was a public event, not done in a corner, not hidden away, done in history, so you can check it out. I wonder what you make of those two very opposing views of this event. Let me ask you another question. If you were going into a conversation with someone who maybe wasn't a Christian, would you lead with the resurrection? Would you lead with it or would you sort of bury it away far back, maybe for a later conversation? Paul leads with it. He goes front foot on the resurrection of Jesus. And that might seem absolutely crazy because he's going before, well, in this chapter, he's going before Imperial Rome. And you think, Paul, what are you doing? I mean, these are rational people. Don't, you're going to mention the resurrection. Oh, he's done it. (laughs) Right up front. The resurrection, right up front. Let's talk about the resurrection. Let's put that on the page and talk about it. That's exactly what he does. And we might think, well, surely the gospel will be stopped at this point. I mean, it came under enough fire last week in Jerusalem under the religious leaders. But surely it's just going to be stopped and snuffed out this week 
as it goes before imperial Rome? Well, not so, not the case. As we saw last week, as we look at these chapters in Acts, the main thing we're seeing is that the good news of the risen Christ is unstoppable as it goes to the ends of the earth. It's unstoppable as it goes to the ends of the earth. And that's where we get to at the end of this week. The gospel is just on its next leg of the journey as it goes on to Rome uh, from where we are. So do open your uh, Bible if you've lost your place, page one one. Two, three, and we're really in in a few chapters. We, we put tw- chapter twenty three to twenty six. We're covering quite a sweep in these uh, few weeks. So I'm just going to cover a bit of ground from where we were last week to the the uh, bit that we're looking at this evening. So I'm just going to talk you through. So previously in uh, in Acts, this is where we've been last week. If you were here, Paul goes into Jerusalem, and at the end of the the thing we looked at last week, the passage we looked at last week. He ends up in a, in a torture chamber. He's about to be flogged. And if you remember, he plays at that point his trump card of Roman citizenship. He plays that at a crucial moment. And so he's saved, saved from the flogging. And, uh, and on he goes. If you just uh, follow through, so chapter 23, you can follow the headings, page 1120. He's on trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and they say that he's done nothing wrong. They can't find anything against him, but they're still mad with him. And so you see the next chapter heading, they plot to kill him. They want to get rid of this man because he's a troublemaker. And so they plot to kill him. Uh, they plot an ambush. They set him up. At a crucial moment, his nephew hears of the plot, reports it to the centurion who gets Paul out of trouble. And so, just look at uh, page 1121. Paul is transferred to Caesarea. Now that's an amazing moment. Chapter 23, verse 23. Uh, there's a plot. The Roman uh, leader calls two of his centurions and orders them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. This is an incredible moment on taxpayers' money. The Apostle Paul is protected by 470 men, transferred. If you're making a film out of this, I don't know, what, what you have the moonlight, you'd have the, the horses' hooves going, this, everything, all of that as it goes off and he goes at night transferred by this sort of crowd of soldiers around him i mean it's like an episode of 24 the bible's the bible's not boring i mean it's, it's a it's a fantastic story as paul is moved around from one to the next and they don't know what to do with him and then you get in these chapters three trials with three different guys two roman governors and one jewish king the roman governors called you can see them there felix and festus and then one Jewish king, Agrippa. Now these guys aren't, um, they're not sort of nice, civil justices of the peace. These are brutal men. These guys are really brutal guys. So in history, you know, records would say that these are like a sort of Idi Amin. If you've ever seen Last King of Scotland, if you've ever seen that film with Idi Amin and what's that guy, James, uh, I want to say Pattinson, it's not him, is it? Thank you, McAvoy in there. Scary scenes, thank you. Scary scenes. There is Idi Amin and there is James McAvoy's character. It's, the tension is there. There must have been something as that, of that as Paul stands before these brutal men. It's amazing actually that he's alive at this point. And so first of all, he's tried by a guy called Marcus Antonius Felix. Got a slide with a, a picture of him there, uh, top left. That's a coin. I guess that's like his Facebook profile or something like that. And... Uh, <laughs> 
there's a gripper on the bottom, bottom right. But these are real, point is, these are real guys from history. These are real guys who really existed in history. So they said in history of Felix, this guy who Paul stands before, history reports that he was freed from uh, slavery and he rose to power as a self-made man. Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, said of that guy on the left that he exercised power. Uh, he exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. A slightly snobby comment. But the point, the point was, he was a guy who was just brutal in how he used power. So he put down a rebellion with the force of a modern day Assad. Just wiped it out. This is a brutal guy who Paul is standing in front of. And so Paul speaks before him. He preaches the resurrection. And at the end of that, chapter 24, we're just moving through a bit here. Chapter 24, the end of, this guy leaves him in jail for two years. So there is Paul in jail down at Caesarea, down by the coast, maybe chained with a long chain to a Roman soldier, possibly not in a cell, but he's, uh, he's in prison in effect for two years. It's during that time he writes some of his letters. Uh, that seems to be uh, the case. So there's some freedom and it seems that some others can come down and visit him. So it seems that Luke is able to come down and visit and, and is a witness to some of this. That's how we get uh, these words And uh, so Felix is the first guy he meets. Uh, And then at the end of that, he's there for two years. Festus is the next guy that he stands before. So he leaves in there two years in prison. And then we're told that he moves off. He just leaves Paul in prison. And the next guy he's before is a guy called Festus. Uh, So Festus speaks to Paul, has Paul come in. Paul makes his defense. And just look at chapter 25, verse 8. Paul makes his defense and it seems that the charge has changed somewhat. Paul makes his defense. Look, I've not done anything wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple. That's the initial charge or against Caesar. So now what they're saying, they're swinging. It's not just that this guy's a troublemaker in Jerusalem. This guy is a threat. He's a threat to Caesar. He's treasonous or something like that. You want to watch out for him. That's the charge that's now being pinned on Paul. And so because this guy's a, a man pleaser, he, he says chapter 25 verse 9, look, can you come up to Jerusalem with me and stand trial? Will you come up? We'll do, we'll do it there. Just to please the Jews, just to keep them through it. And at this moment, Paul appeals to Rome. This is a key moment in how the gospel ended up getting to Rome. He must have thought if the Jewish leaders just get a hold of this and are prejudiced against me, if they manage to swing the trial then they'll also be able to publish that Rome have sort of given this verdict so if Paul goes up to Jerusalem the Jewish leaders can try him swing it their way put the stamp of Rome on it and then you see what's happened to the Christian faith well in the public eyes it's just it's just a sort of sect that shouldn't exist shouldn't be allowed to exist by Rome or the Jewish leaders and so Paul says I appeal to Rome you could do that as a um, as a Roman citizen as Paul was And so he appeals to Rome. He could do that. And so he goes, as we'll see, to Nero. He's not doing it for personal safety. The guy he's going up before is Caesar Nero. That guy. That Nero. Not doing it for personal personal safety. He's going to go up to Nero. And he must have been hoping that he'd have a favorable ruling for the Christian faith at the top of the empire. That they'd give that, that, that all clear 
on that. It had something of that protection before. That's the reason he's doing it. Now we get to our chapter. <laughs> now we get to our chapter, just a sort of bit of a roller coaster to get to chapter 26. And so we're now before these other brutal guys. We've got Festus and we've got King Agrippa. And there is Paul. We know maybe he's, maybe he's semi-blind. Seems that he's a bow-legged small guy standing before these brutal killers. What will he say? What will he say to them? And actually before that, what will Festus, do you see as we had in our reading, Festus has a problem. What should he write as he sends him up to Nero? Well, it just so happens that Agrippa, King Agrippa, the Jewish king, is on a state visit. I imagine there may be in checkers. You know, this sort of state visit, the after, you know, just a conversation. And he says, look, I've got this guy, Paul, I don't know what to do with him. I've got to write a letter to Nero, but I've got no charges against him. Do you know anything about this? Can you help me? Agrippa says, bring him in. Bring him in. And so Paul is brought in before these two guys. He, he must have known that he had, at that moment, the ear of the Roman world. He knows that he's being tried to find out what charges they're going to put before Nero. He has the ear of Rome. He has the microphone of the world, if you like, as he preaches. And so Luke includes these sermons in Acts to give us a flavour of the sort of things that would have been said. And this is what Paul, in effect, would say to the world. If, I don't know, if he had the microphone at the start of the Olympics... You said, you've got, you got five minutes. What do you want to say to the world about the Christian faith? That's the situation here. He knows this is going to go out to Rome. What does he say? Well, he goes on the resurrection. Straight in on the resurrection. And I want to pick out three things from the verses that we had read and then just push them a bit on us. So he says three things. And the first is in verses six to eight. His claim is that the resurrection is traditional, traditional belief, not cultish. Let me just read verse 6 of chapter 26. He says, And now, it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Now the resurrection is key in all of the speeches that Paul makes in the book of Acts. And here do you see what he's saying? He's saying, my belief in the resurrection of Jesus is mainstream Jewish belief. He's putting himself right in the mainstream. He's saying, what I believe is Jewish belief through and through. So if you're going to try me, you may as well try the whole Jewish belief system. You may as well put the the Pharisees and the Sadducees on trial as well. It's mainstream and the, and, and the point he makes is in verse 8. Do you see, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And you might say, well, there are lots of reasons to believe it's incredible that God raises the dead. But Paul's saying, well, do you? Do you believe it's incredible that God could raise the dead? In fact, that, that word dead there is, is a plural word. He's saying dead people. 
In other words, in Jewish belief, there was always a belief in the Old Testament that there would be a final resurrection of all people, the resurrection of the dead. And later on, Paul says, well, do you see verse 23? Just turn over the page. He says that the Christ would suffer and would be the first or the first fruits to rise from the dead. So he's saying, look, Jewish belief, in fact, all people really believe that, that everyone will be raised. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is just the first of that. It's just the first fruits, just the start of that. It'd be a bit like going out to, um, going out to see a f- chat to a farmer. And they've got, uh, they got an empty field in front of them. And you said, uh, this summer, do you think there'll be a crop? And they say, uh, yeah, I believe there's going to be a, a crop. There's always a crop. It always comes through. And then you said, okay, if you could get a camera on uh, all of the grains as they come up, do you think there'd be one that would be the first to come up? If you could go in super slow-mo, do you think you could isolate one that came up first? You'd probably say, yeah, there'll be one that came up first before the rest of the crop. And Paul's saying that's basically what's going on. There's the resurrection of the dead that Jewish believers have always believed in. And there'll be the first fruits. And Jesus Christ is the first. He was the first of what everyone else is expecting anyway. He just rose from the dead before that time. What does that mean today? What does that mean today? Well, the the point is, verse 8, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? As soon as... In one sense, as soon as you've bought into there being a God, why is it incredible anymore that he could raise the dead? If he created the universe, if there's a God, if he put stars in their place, if he's that powerful, if he created all life, why would you think it's incredible, unbelievable, that God could raise the dead? So I think it's true to say today, actually, belief that that, that people will live forever will come back on the other side of the grave. In one sense, that's actually quite traditional. All major religions would hold that there's something on the other side. Actually, all of us, even if we wouldn't call ourselves Christian, would go to a a funeral. Most funerals would have some sense of that. Or we would say, even if we didn't know how we got there logically, I think Uncle Andrew is looking down on us. We would say those sorts of things deep within us, you see. Deep within us is a mainstream belief that actually we're immortal souls that actually we live beyond the grave we've got no idea without a christian framework how we get there and all paul is saying is you see the resurrection of jesus taps into exactly what we already believe that there'll be a resurrection of the dead it's not incredible and that jesus christ has risen in history so there's the first thing he's saying christianity is not a cult it's not like I mean, scientology has been in the news a lot this week hasn't it Tom Cruise and, and Katie Holmes been a lot. I mean, that is, where does that idea come from? It comes from Ron Hubbard in the, in the 50s. What's the evidence for the idea that there will be Zenu, the, the ruling uh, king of the galactic, um, whatever it is, confederacy? Where does that, where does that, it just comes from one man's thought. And there's no evidence for it. It's cultish, it's out there. It's not orthodox. And Paul is, Paul is saying, look, the Christian faith the Christian faith is based on evidence. People saw Jesus. There was an empty tomb. No body produced. Transformed disciples. There was evidence in history. It's not, a, it's not out there. 
that Christians believe that. It's mainstream. It's traditional. Here's the second thing. Just turn over the page to verse 18. The second thing he says is that the resurrection of Jesus is good, not threatening. So, um, sorry, back up. Verse 9. Before that, back a page. There you go. Keep you awake. Verse 9. I too, he says, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so that's what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. See, Paul is saying at one point, I was absolutely convinced that this stuff about the resurrection and this Jesus of Nazareth was trouble. He was trouble and he had to be squashed out, politically dangerous. And then he says, well, what changed? Well, he met Jesus Christ. Over the page, verse 15, I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness of what you've seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from, the, from, the dark, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. See, what he's saying is the message I realized as I met the person of Jesus does not threaten. You remember he's got the microphone, he's trying to persuade Rome. Is this a threat to Rome? He's putting it out there. He's saying it's not. I understood as I met the person of Jesus Christ that the message is good and not threatening. Just look at verse 18. See four things that are good news and not threatening. Light for a start. The promise is that the good news of the resurrection opens people's eyes and turns them from darkness to light. And think about it in the world. We all, want, we all want light on a situation. We all want clarity. We have a phrase, to throw light on a situation. Uh, politicians want light on how to be clear on the way forward. Psychologists want to throw light on inner deep things that we've got no idea about. We want light. It's a good thing. And Paul is saying that the gospel offers light. And secondly, it's good because it offers the overthrow of evil. Turn from the power of Satan to God. So again, if you believe that there's a God, why wouldn't you believe that there's the, the devil as well? And so the Bible says that there is more than human sin in in this world. It's not to excuse uh, sin at work in our lives. But the Bible speaks of a real, personal, aggressive force for evil. And it's the resurrection of Jesus, this good news, that can overthrow evil, move people from darkness, from uh, into light, from the power of Satan, to God. So light, overthrow of evil. Third, forgiveness. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. What a wonderful, what a wonderful truth. Forgiveness of sins. Do you know how many of the problems that you and I face, experience, people would say are, are linked to our struggles with guilt? Man's struggle to deal with a guilty conscience 
It destroys peace of mind, can create illness, can break up families, can do all sorts of things. Guilt destroys peace of mind, can corrode us from the inside, can just stalk us and haunt us in the future. And Paul is saying the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the solution to that. There is forgiveness of sins. So light, the overthrow of evil, forgiveness, lastly, hope. Hope, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what Jesus was offering. There's a place. There's hope. If you've put your faith in me, that this world is not all that there is. Now, of course, a worldview that says this is all that there is will inevitably lead to just people grabbing things now. That could, that could pull down an empire. It does, as people just grab. Actually, if there's no hope, that's much more threatening to an empire than what Paul is saying. There's hope. And so Christians can live, can live in the world with hope, not having to have everything now, but serving others. And so Paul says, verse 20, just look at verse 20. So then Agrippa was not disobedient, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and to the Gentiles also I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. So do you see, when people get a hold of this, when the truth of this gets a hold of them, this is good for a society, it's not threatening. This would be good for Rome, he's saying into the microphone. Because people turn and live in the light of these things. So, so far we've seen traditional, not cultish. What was the second thing? Good, not threatening. Here's the third. Just turn to verse 23. Credible, not insane. That's the resurrection. It's credible, not insane. Paul's been going and Festus just can't help himself. He speaks, Paul, you're going mad. Your great learning, it's driving you insane. And possibly Festus um, thinks at this point that all that Christians have been saying is, was Jesus dead or alive? Was he still alive out there somewhere or, or had he died? Possibly that's what he's thinking. It's now crystal clear from what Paul says. He's not talking about that. He's talking about Jesus was dead and is now alive. And Festus goes, what on earth are you talking about? He responds with incredulity. I guess it's instinctive to react like that. I mean, Paul's not, Paul isn't gullible. It's not that people back then believed more than people would today uh, in that. But he's saying that the evidence, verse 26, is out there. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. I guess it'd be like, um, you know, people used to think, didn't they, of course, that the world was flat. So what people, you know, used to think if you, uh, that the proof that it uh, couldn't possibly uh, be, be round was because people thought, well, if it is round, then there are some people uh, down at the bottom of the world sort of upside down. Therefore, it can't, I mean, I hadn't heard of Australia, of course, but, uh, you know, they're, they're going, can't be true. It can't be true. But, of course, what happened? Well, the evidence, the evidence just trumped that. People held on to this belief for a long time. But actually, the evidence took them there, even though at first, when they heard about that, they thought, no, this can't be, this can't be right that it's round, instinctive reaction against it, but the evidence took them there. And that's what Paul's saying here. So you're, this is crazy. Paul's saying, at one time I thought that as well and I tried to get rid of it, but the evidence took me there. 
This is credible. He uses two words there. It's true. It's reasonable. It's reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's absolutely reasonable, says Paul. It's open to scrutiny. It wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't hidden away. And Paul, I mean, he can't resist it, can he? Verse 28, he's got a gripper there in front of him, this Jewish king, the personal evangelist, Paul. He can't resist just uh, moving out of sort of legal defense mode and just eyeballing this important guy and saying, now, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Do you believe the prophets? I know you believe the Jewish Old Testament said that one day someone would come who'd beat death. Do you believe those And Agrippa says, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? It's credible, says Paul. It's not insane to personally believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so do you see what we had those quotes at the start? Richard Dawkins and Paul. One saying it was a myth and the other saying it was a true fact that happened in history. Paul is saying, you see, it's it's open to scrutiny, this event. And we can today look back and see how this event has divided history in two, B.C. and A.D. It's divided history in two. It turned fearful fishermen into global evangelists. I mean, you look back, there's the evidence is there. Much of our culture can only be explained on the basis of the resurrection and the change that it made. So Paul's saying it's credible, it's not insane. Just in the last few minutes, what I just want to do is just, what's, let me tell you what struck me as I looked at this this week, and it's this. It's that it looks like as you read this through, that it's the gospel that is under attack or under siege. And yet it's the absolute opposite when you think about it. It's the other way around. See, Paul puts a stake in the ground in all of his sermons on his trials of the resurrection. He just puts that in the ground. He says the resurrection happened. And all around him, people have to reconfigure their entire thought process to to avoid this issue. And that's what Festus does. He says, well, uh, when it's convenient, I'll call you back in. But later, King Agrippa does exactly the same thing. People just, people run for cover, actually, at the resurrection. They can't deal with it. I mean, verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? In other words, do you believe the resurrection happened? What did he say? Do you think you can persuade me to become... That's not the question. My question is, do you think the resurrection happened or not? Are you trying to persuade me to become... No, that's not the... Do you see? Do you see what's going on? He's put the stake in the ground. And people just are reconfiguring their entire world to avoid this issue. Let me try and illustrate this. And you may have to run with this. Imagine you're trying to besiege a city. Imagine for some reason you're trying to besiege a city. And imagine that the rules of besieging cities are, um, you can only use a battering ram. Yeah, I'm so, hang, hang with me on this, work with me. You can only use battering rams. That's the only way that you can bring a city down. And so you try with the battering ram. You try that and the city stands firm. And so you, what you do? You change the rules. You, you, you know you're not meant to, but you just start throwing bananas at, uh, at it to bring it down. It's not one of the international rules, but you do it anyway. And then it's still standing. So what do you do at that point? You change the rules. You move over here and you just pretend that the castle, city, doesn't exist anymore. Have you got rid of the city? 
No. The city's still over there. You tried to besiege it and nothing happened. And you might be standing over here saying, there is no city, there is no city. We've changed the rules. We've tried bananas. We've changed everything else. We, we imagine it doesn't exist. Now what's happened? Which has besieged which? You started besieging, but actually you've changed all of your worldview to deal with that because it's so solid. Let me try and explain the point that I'm making from that. The rules of, if you like, the rules of logic state that if you're going to believe that something exists or not, then it stands or falls on evidence. Is there evidence for it? Now, there's mathematical proof, of course. That's, that's one type. But everything else that we deal with, we deal with in evidence. Science is dealing with evidence. That's how we deal with things. And you see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so solid, is so solid in history, that as you see people start to engage with it, what happens? Well, people reconfigure their worldviews. People change the rules of the game. Say, well, we don't need evidence. We change our arguments. Say, it's just, in, it's just insane to believe. Well, have you looked at the evidence? It's just insane to even believe in it. So don't go near it. Say, well, later on, it's when it's convenient, I'll, I'll look at it, as, uh, as, uh, as Festus, as so Felix did. Let me just give you two examples of that as we, as we wrap it up, just of what that might look like. I don't know if this would be where you are, but um, here's an example just from public debate. This is someone writing about the new atheist. He says, the new atheist never tire of citing Bertrand Russell's reply when he was asked what he would say if God were to ask him after his death why he had not believed. Not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. But then a curious thing happens. When evidence is offered to them, they refuse to examine it. I've already mentioned Richard Dawkins' contemptuous dismissal of the resurrection in our God delusion debate. So his attitude is clear. Furthermore, I know of no serious attempt by any of the new atheists to engage with the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, that's extraordinary. That's extraordinary if true. No serious attempt to grapple with it, just dismissed out of hand. Do you see what's going on there? There's this event in history that's divided history in two, and people are changing the rules of the game, saying so we don't have to engage with it. But there's evidence where we don't have to engage with it. We, we don't need to. That's what it might look like in the public. What does that look like in personal conversation? What might that look like? Last week I was having a conversation with a friend, intelligent guy, a doctor, scientific uh, background. We're talking about uh, the Christian faith. And he was saying to me, in effect, um, I don't need, look, I'm an evidence sort of guy. I'm a scientist. I don't need to look at the resurrection. And I was trying to push back and, and say, look, actually, have you, have you ever read an account? Have you ever read an account of the resurrection, the eyewitnesses that we've got in history, the evidence for that? He said, no, no. I said, really? You never looked at it? He said, uh, no, I just haven't. I mean, I, I said, it would take you a couple of hours just to read through, just to be really sure. And, uh, and then at this point, he, he simply said this, I just don't like the sound of the God that you Christians believe in. That was, that was his baseline objection. I just don't like the sound of it. And I thought to myself, that's, that's this. That's exactly this. There's this solid stake in the ground. And here's someone going, I just reconfigure the rules of the game 
And, and, and so you say, do you believe the prophets? And you say, you're trying to persuade me to become a Christian. I'm just saying, can you, would you look at the evidence? Are you trying to, would you look at the evidence? That's what Paul is saying as he stands up. I mean, if I told the, this guy that there was a, a bomb under the building, he, he'd have checked, uh, you know, gone down into the basement. If I'd said to him that there was a cure for, for cancer, he'd have gone to see the GP. No doubt about it. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it, it's the bomb under the building. It's, there's, there will be a judgment. It's, it's the cure. It's, there's hope beyond the grave. It's, it's real. That's the Christian claim. And yet on the resurrection, many, many people have never checked it out. And so the question is, where is the insanity? Do you see that? Where? Paul, you're insane. The answer comes back. Well, look, if you've never looked at it, if you've never looked at this, engaged with it, where is the insanity in that? Could it be actually the insanity is on the, I won't engage with that point of view? Let me just make two comments as we close. The first is, can I encourage you, if you've never engaged with the evidence, to engage with the evidence for the resurrection. If you're looking in on the Christian faith, some people get uncomfortable, like Felix. They never let the conversation get too dangerous. I'll send for you when it's convenient. But there may just be a few here this evening who are just open, who want to come out of the the fog and just engage. Maybe I've, I've rattled your cage a little bit. I'm not trying to be insulting. I'm just saying there's evidence out there. Will you engage with it? Here's a, well, look, where to start? Luke's first book puts the evidence out there. Read through Luke's first book. That'd be the place to start. If you want some people who've thought that through, this book's a great book. Who moved the stone? The guy, the book that should never have been written, the guy says, was trying to disprove the resurrection, ended up becoming a Christian and writing this book. I ordered this one on Amazon for a couple of quid. If you, seriously, if you want this, uh, come and get it for me afterwards. It's free. It's going free. If this is for you, if you know you just need to check it out, just come and get it for me afterwards. In fact, I'll put it there. Just take it. First come, first serve. It's there. Free. Free. That's all yours. That's fine. Another book, The Resurrection Factor by Josh McDowell. That's mine, but I'll tell you what, I'll sell it. No, I'll give it. There you go. That's on there as well. Take them. Will you engage? Will you engage with this issue? As the first comment. The second is this. So engage with the evidence. If you wouldn't say you're a Christian, engage. Will you engage with the evidence? Secondly, speak with confidence. Paul goes into, I can't think of a more terrifying situation than this. He's on trial for his life. There are people plotting to kill him. And he's before three of the most brutal leaders of the day. What does he do? I want to tell you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Front foot, front and center, straight out there. If you're a Christian, speak with confidence. Speak with confidence. You know, you can go into any room, any room with this truth in the ground and be confident that there are no arguments that can knock this down. Someone, put it, someone said, it's the rock of Gibraltar. I don't know what that means, but I think that just means it's a, it's a serious lump that can't be moved. The resurrection, if you're a Christian, it's your rock of Gibraltar. You can go into any room confident of this. It's the foundation to build your life on. And the foundation of confidence in conversations with others. So don't be thrown. Expect these reactions. But don't be thrown when people say you're insane. Actually, the insanity is on the other side. Don't be thrown. Don't be triumphalistic. Don't be proud about it. Humble confidence. Humble confidence in the resurrection 
of Jesus. Someone reminded me the other day of a comment by uh, an Australian evangelist called John Chapman, who when he's struggling in the Christian faith, and he's wondering, should I get out of bed in the morning? He says to himself, okay, Chapo, I'm not, I can't do accents. I'm not going to do the Australian accent. He says, come on, Chapo, have you got a new piece of evidence? Come on, Chapo, have you got a new piece of evidence to prove that the resurrection didn't happen? Go on, Chapo, have you got nothing? No, no. Okay, let's get out of bed and carry on with the day. You see, speak with confidence, live Live with hope. Live with hope if you're a Christian. Because Jesus Christ was dead and he walked out of a tomb and he's risen, never to die again. Let's pray. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped your notice because it was not done in a corner. Our Father, we praise you that our uh, faith, our hope in the future, uh, our lives are not based on a crazy myth that's just come out of someone's imagination, set to fool us, set to trick us. But our faith is based on the rock of Jesus Christ's resurrection, that he died, that he rose from the grave that he was seen, that he's divided history into two, that he's changed lives in the course of history. And so we ask that if we're looking into these things, you'd give us understanding. And if we're persuaded, if we're trusting in you, that you'd help us to live with confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.